I think it's time to start, don't you? <laughs> Welcome. This has been wonderful, hasn't it? And beautiful weather. Oh, this is great. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful place that you have provided for us. We thank you for watching over us, giving us good rests. I pray that you'll be with us today and help us to understand your love more fully as we look at the area of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, rather than dialogue back and forth repeatedly, I'm going to start talking and share my own journey of dealing with Anthony, and then Barbara will con- hmm. Barbara will conclude the morning. Barbara will conclude the morning uh, by talking about. Uh, her experience and our experiences were quite different. One of the things we have learned in the process of this is that every individual grieves in their own way. Uh, we uh, we have heard about some families for whom periods of adjustment to losses create significant family conflict. Uh, w- one early experience for me that was a a very painful illustration of that is that the, the Christmas following Shannon's death, <clears throat> I came home one evening and Barbara and Hillary, our surviving daughter, were beginning to set up the Christmas tree and getting out ornaments and so forth. And we, um, we have a number of ornaments that each individual in the family has some attachment to. And as they were uh, as they were doing this, Hillary started to tell me a story, uh, unrelated, just some happening that had been going on during the week. And in the process of that, I glanced down at the pile of ornaments and saw an ornament that belonged to Shannon. And my mind instantly was just absolutely gone. And Hillary recognized that and in the middle of her story stopped and said to me, can't you even listen to what I have to say? And I knew that if I told her why I had been distracted, it would make the situation probably worse. And I felt horrible for her, even though she didn't know it. At that moment, she was competing with a dead sister for my attention. Uh, And it was a a reminder to me of the, the ongoing and recurring nature of grief. Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, an American poet, writes, I am not resigned 
to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is and so it will be, for so it has been time out of mind. Into the darkness they go, the wise and the lovely. Crowned with lilies they go, but I am not resigned. Lovers and thinkers into the earth with you. Be one with the dull, the indiscriminate dust, a fragment of what you felt, of what you knew, a formula, a phrase remains, but the best is lost. The answers, quick and keen, the honest look, the laughter, the love, they're gone. They're gone to feed the roses. Elegant and curled is the blossom. Fragrant is the blossom. I know, but I do not approve. More precious was the light in your eyes than all the roses in the world. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave. Gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. We've heard some of your stories uh, while we've been here, experiences of uh, lost dreams and hopes for what you had hoped life would be for you, the loss of spouses and friends, uh, of jobs, uh, of a sense of uh, safety in the company of friends whom you trusted and who comforted you at difficult times, at times of failure like uh, Bud Roberts was talking about this morning. All kinds of reasons bring us um, to face our losses, don't they? And even though those circumstances vary from one of us to another, our experiences of them unite us. They create in us a sense of solidarity, a, a resistance to this unintended, unnatural consequence in human life. God didn't want it this way. He intended something quite different from this. But in spite of what his intentional will was, the circumstances create a whole different reality. I mentioned yesterday that uh, I'm an Irishman. I hear stories of my great-grandfather, whom I've never met, who had such a volatile temper, glimpses of which I experience in my own life and have seen in some relatives. My great-grandfather has such a violent temper that a horse with whom he was working one day offended him. And he got down from his seat and clobbered this horse with his fist in the side of the head, 
and the horse fell to his knees. Boom! I always assumed that if anybody did anything to a member of my family, I would attack them with fury. Barbara and I, in the early 80s, uh, a few years after we first went to Walla Walla, became sponsors of a, a, a hockey club. Students in the school wasn't an organized sport there, but they enjoyed playing hockey and needed somebody on the staff to, to sponsor them. So we did that for several years. I, I often thought, in fact, uh, that to be surrounded with those big burly guys who, once they put their skates on, are already three or four inches taller than they are in normal life anyway, and can look pretty intimidating and behave at times like that. I always thought that it would be a good idea in a time of crisis for me to be surrounded by some of those hockey players to keep me from doing something stupid or destructive. So when we got that announcement in John's office, and then uh, a day or two later, we're able to focus our anger on the perpetrator of this crime, I would have expected all of those furious emotions to erupt in me. And it was a surprise to me that it didn't happen. I, I have no good explanation for it, but I was not consumed with rage and revenge. And I was extremely grateful. Mm -hmm. It's exactly right. It was a gift of grace to me that I did not deserve, that I did not create or generate myself. God prevented me from having to face that. Part of the reason uh, the psychologists among you would tell, would tell me now is that I was so overcome with sadness that the sadness overweighed my anger. The psychologist would tell you that anger and sadness all come from the same kinds of circumstances. And to one degree or another, we have some choice as to how to express those emotions, either as sadness or as anger. They're the flip side of the same coin. And early on, the sadness and what I recognized later as depression uh, were so uh, in the forefront of my mind that there just wasn't any place for the anger. It was a great relief to me and probably to those who had to live with me during that period of time. It wouldn't have solved my problem anyway, would it? if I had been able somehow to attack Anthony. Because nothing would bring Shannon back. And that would be the only solution for this sense of emptiness I felt inside. So my impulses 
would not have been a help and would have immensely complicated life for me and for everybody who was associated with me. So for those first several months, uh, I was just um, immensely sad. Many times every day, the memories would surface uh, about Shannon. Uh, A thought, uh, reading something that reminded me of her, hearing someone's voice whose inflection reminded me of hers, walking down the street, seeing someone who took steps like she took, hearing a song that reminded me of her. All of those things brought everything rushing back. And over and over that happened. It was many months until the first day came for either Barbara or me when we recognized that we had gone for a whole day and not thought about her. And then we felt sad about that. (laughs) There's just no winning this war with grief, is there? It surrounds us and chokes us. Some of you uh, asked about uh, our attitude toward Anthony. It was a very impersonal contact from early on. We did go back uh, for his hearing and sentencing. And uh, at the end of the hearing, testimony from police officers, detectives, psychiatrists and psychologists who had interviewed him. Uh, We had submitted in writing uh, a statement to the judge that in legal terms is called the victim impact statement. What effect did this have on uh, those of you who are survivors and in what way might that influence the sentencing? Uh, We chose not to make a public statement to the judge in court. Uh, Part of that was uh, my own wish not to allow Anthony to have any more, or at least not to let him know that he had any more influence in my life than he already had. Um, Part of of an internship uh, in my doctoral study uh, that I did was a three-month a period of time working in the chaplain's office at the state prison in California, in Chino, the women's prison. And I knew as a result of that time that one of the things on which criminals thrive is power over other people. So for me to let the man who stabbed and slashed Shannon to death know how miserable I was as a result of that, seemed to me that it would have been giving him some kind of power over me. And I didn't want to surrender that. So we wrote out our uh, statements and submitted them in private to the judge. When it came to the time of uh, all of those testimonies, uh, the little courtroom, which was comparatively small, mm, maybe half of the size of, uh, of this center section, a center aisle and seats down each side. Um, Anthony, on his side of the courtroom, had a few people there, a handful. His mother, 
you'll remember better than I, Barbara, sibling or two. The rest of the courtroom was absolutely filled with family and church friends of Shannon's. Toward the end of, uh, of, the, of the testimony, the state's attorney, attorney Bob Dean, who had uh, represented the state and had visited with us, I told you about him coming to visit us at home, made a very passionate appeal to the judge, reminded her of the horrific nature of this crime, and uh, closed his appeal with words very close to these. And this man, and he pointed to Anthony, who had been almost motionless during this whole period of time, spent most of that time with his head down, looking at the table in front of him, not making eye contact with anyone. Robert Dean pointed at him and said, this man deserves to spend the rest of his life in his own private hell. And at that, Anthony looked up and looked at the state's attorney and gave him the finger. So we left court that day with that visual image in our mind. Not a repentant, remorseful, this was a horrible error of mine, but an angry, resentful person who did not want to take responsibility for what he had done. Carl, you challenged us the other night with distinguishing the difference between mercy and justice. Uh, those terms are much more complicated for me now than they used to be. Although I have to admit that um, most of my life I have been a legalist. I want to know what the rules are and I want to keep them. I spent much of my life paying very close attention to the rules. In fact, I'll tell you a story. I'll make a confession. When we got ready to fly down here, we were ready amply early. We arrived at the airport long ahead of time, got in the security line, I started taking off my shoes and took off my coat and, you know, all the routine. Took the computer out and I reached in the bag and the computer was not there. And we needed the computer for presentations here. So what do I do? The security people who, in, in Walla Walla, we all know each other, who know us, kind of chuckled at this and said, I'm going to have to go back home. Do I have to take all my luggage back out of here and back out to the car? Can I send it? And they said, well, if Barbara's willing to take it through the line, she can keep your luggage. So I tied my shoes, took my driver's license, car keys, ran out to the parking lot, and headed home. The speed limit's on the roads between the airport and home were between 25 and 50. I did not keep any of them. But I laughed at myself when I came to a stop sign because I could not make myself go straight through the stop sign even though I could see for miles on both sides. Keeping the law was so important to me that I stopped dead and then took off and broke the speed limit on the rest of the way home. 
What sense does that make? It makes no sense whatsoever. But I want to do things right. Justice is what comes to people who break the law. And it seemed to me that Anthony deserved that. This is a consequence of what he had done, and he ought to suffer the natural consequences of that. So when he was sentenced, as Barbara mentioned our first day, to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus life in prison, plus 20 years, it allowed me somehow um, to rest comfortably in knowing that some kind of justice had been served there. Well, I don't want to get too carried away with this, but we could talk about the different types of justice. I remember sitting in a, in a workshop where a former president of the New York Theological Seminary um, was talking about justice and forgiveness in international terms. How do we as military people cope with that, uh, etc.? And he talked about several categories of justice. He reminded us that, for example, there is punitive justice, where you want to punish that person who has done the misdeed. And there is another kind of justice called restorative justice. Some kinds of justice bring harmony and uh, hope for restoration and sometimes reconciliation. You may have uh, followed or, or paid attention to uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after the apartheid days were over, when those who had perpetrated crimes, crimes on, on the opposite race of people were brought before this tribunal as a way of ensuring that justice was satisfied but allowing some kind of restoration in relationships to take place at the same time. I think all of that's possible. Those theoretical discussions came to me months and years later than that courtroom in Tacoma Park. So I was grateful during those early months that God shielded me from the rage and anger that I would have anticipated that I would feel. Anthony was safely put away we were able uh, to begin processing over the next several months during the fall and into early winter uh, our own sense of losing Shannon. And then in the spring, we got a phone call from the state's attorney's office in Maryland. Anthony had filed an appeal he wanted to change his plea to not guilty and he wanted his sentences reduced. And even remembering that phone call tightens my jaw and creates a knot in my stomach. I was at that point absolutely furious. This man who had admitted stabbing and slashing Shannon to death, now wanted to try to get out of paying the consequences for what he had admitted he had done. I was absolutely enraged. This happened early in the week. 
And we didn't share that news outside of our immediate family with anyone for several days. And I spent time trying to cope with this rush of emotional pressure. I tried everything I could think of. Uh, By then, you know, I was a mature, lifelong Christian. I know what the Bible says about forgiving people. I not only was a lifelong Christian, but I had been teaching for several years a stress management class on the campus. (laughs) So... I tried all the exercises I told students would work. Deep breathing. Feel the air coming in. Let it go out. Open your arms and let go of the pressure that's weighing. I did all these things. I had also taught for several years uh, a spirituality class in which we... um, developed and practiced together different ways to pray, to release our grievances to God, to let go of our hurts and angers and let God carry them for us. I knew how to do all of those things. And for day after day after day, I tried it and nothing worked. Nothing worked. I went to church that next Sabbath morning with the knot still in my stomach and my jaw tight and my fists clenched, I was still furious at Anthony. Knowing that the stone walls and concertina wire across the top and bars on his cell were not keeping him in, they were keeping me out. In church that Sabbath morning, John Crest, the same person who had announced her death to me was scheduled to preach and without knowing anything about what we had been going through he chose text in the in the book of John they will know you're Christians by your love love one another as I have loved you. And I sat there that morning knowing that I had spent hour after day after day after day trying to do that very thing that week and it was impossible for me. Nothing worked. So my mind began to wander to other verses. It's interesting how the Apostle John is one who emphasizes that whole notion of love. Carl, you refer to a text in the 13th chapter. He talks about it again in John 15. And uh, in 1 John, reiterates many of those ideas. Love each other as I have loved you. This is the test. This is the mark by which people will know that you have been with me. It is how open you are to those people around you. And for me, as a lifelong committed Christian, 
not to be able to do this one thing Jesus asked of me. A thing that seemed so simple and uncomplicated was absolutely shattering to me. I could not do what Jesus asked me to do. So, the story of Peter's failure rushed into me. Because I realized that my inability to be what God asked me to be separated me from God himself. And that, in fact, from God's point of view, I was in as dire a situation as was Anthony in his prison cell in Maryland. I was, from a moral point of view, an angry, resentful, suspicious, cynical human being. Many times in my life I've been uh, impressed with my own guilt and failures to do what I wanted to do. But in this case, I recognize that it wasn't just my behavior that it was at issue here. It was who I was at the core of my being. That it wasn't just the choice of what I did that was wrong. It was who I am as a person that alienated me from God. And in that way, I was on a par with the man who killed our daughter. I've done some projection about uh, what Peter must have felt like when he recognized that in, in spite of his best efforts, he could not do what he had promised Jesus that he would do, that he would stand up for him. And uh, your comments this morning, Bud, about Jesus seeking, out, seeking Peter out in a particular and very special way uh, ring home to me. How is it that in spite of the fact that we have committed ourselves to God and we can make long lists of the good things we have done throughout our lives, all the rules we have kept well and the good choices we have made, how is it that we can cope with those moments of absolute spiritual bankruptcy? when we realize that at the heart of it all, we are as miserable as a murderer. I think sometimes we as Christians pay way too much attention to behavior and not nearly as much as we need to to our attitudes. Huh? I remember when I was a pathfinder. 
I'm so old that it was while I was still a pathfinder that they initiated uh, the granting of what's called a good conduct ribbon. In my days, the good conduct ribbon was given only occasionally to one person in the club at a time. Being a perfectly good, upstanding, obedient, competitive child, I wanted that thing. I still fix in my mind one night during a break at Pathfinder Club meeting, heading to the drinking fountain to, getting a, to get a drink, and didn't realize evidently that I was jumping in line in front of other people and not being very kind and gentle about it. And one of the leaders of the club said to me, Daryl, are you sure you want to act this way? What if you might be one who's being considered for the good conduct ribbon? Boy, I jumped to the back of the line real fast. I want to do what's right. The behavior is what's important, huh? But I have learned that we can do all the right things and be an absolutely despicable person. Remember the rich young man who came to Jesus? Good master, what must I do to be saved? And so Jesus said, well, you keep the commandments. Oh, I've done that. All my life I've done that. We're in, uh, we're very vulnerable to making those kinds of statements ourselves. Being so good that we forget we are, at the core, evil, sinister people. We can do a lot to change our behavior, but we can't do much to change who we are. And that distinction is a crucial one when you think about your camp meeting theme this year. How is it that we go about lifting Jesus up instead of establishing ourselves as our own uh, mark of authenticity? So I sat in that church Sabbath morning realizing that at the core of myself, I, the professional Adventist Christian, the good conduct recipient, the head chaplain in the Navy Reserve, the Seventh-day Adventist who doesn't play frisbee and volleyball on Sabbath afternoon, the vegetarian, on and on we can go with those markers, can't we? That I, at the core of myself, was a mistrustful, angry, cynical, vengeful human being. It crushed me, absolutely crushed me. While I sat in church uh, with that reality washing over me, I remembered verses uh, from the book of Romans. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Huh? I had been thankful to Jesus many times in the past. But I had not realized how thankful I needed to be until that Sabbath morning. Because that Sabbath morning I saw myself uh, through the eyes of a depth of reality that I had never been willing to see before. And the more profoundly needy we are, the more profoundly grateful we become when Jesus loves us anyway. Huh? That to me is, is why an open, accepting, loving marriage is so symbolic of God's relationship to us. With the person in whose company I'm willing to literally take off all my clothes and show all my warts and wrinkles, the turns and twists about me I despise in myself and be loved anyway, not because of those things, but in spite of all of those things, in the company of that person, I sense what it is to be loved. And that Sabbath morning, when that second verse in Romans came to my mind, I felt the same way about God. This person whom I had come to despise and recognize was no better than Anthony, this person is the one Jesus died for. Not the good little boy who jumped to the back of the drinking fountain line. Not the one who stops a complete stop at every stop sign. It's the miserable part of me Jesus loves so much that he died for. Uh, tomorrow morning I'm going to talk a little bit about some things we can do for ourselves uh, to help us become forgiving people. And I think there are some uh, natural human behaviors we can, we can incorporate into our lives that can help mold our behavior. But today I want to emphasize first and foremost that it is impossible for us to change ourselves. We can transform our behavior. We can learn self-control and can redirect our energies, but we cannot change who we are. That's the miracle God wants to perform for us. So, all week long I have been struggling, trying to let go of these knots in my body and hatred in my mind, and nothing I tried worked until I confessed to myself who I was. And let the profound reality of God's reaching out to me wash over me. And when I remembered that text in Romans, 
the knots in my stomach went away and my jaw relaxed. And another hurt, as a matter of fact, a time by an experience during which I had felt betrayed by one whom I trusted as a colleague and had later felt misrepresented and maligned, a hurt that I had carried for a long time went away as well. Not because of something I did, but because of uh, an openness to admit who I really am and then let God do it for me. Huh? Do you remember this old hymn? If you do, I'd be happy to let you just sing it along with me. Because it becomes kind of a theme song for me. Chief of sinners though I be, Jesus his life for me died that I might never die died that I might live on high as the branches to the vine I am his and he is mine Amen, amen. In spite of who we are, God is who is ours. So for me now, the symptoms, the anger, the rage, the hurt, the holding on to grievances, those are no longer the problem. They are simply symptoms of the problem. If God himself really is the source of love, and we experience that love as a transforming power in our lives when we accept it from him, then the symptoms simply remind us that we have gotten away from the source of love somehow. So my challenge when I sense myself being angry, and I can tell you that I'm much more aware of that now than I was before this happening to me. When I sense myself being angry at the person who's driving too slowly in front of me, or at the one who's tooting at me behind me, or at the one who jumps in front of me in line, or at the, at the one who says, shh, at the general conference, Whatever those, whatever those experiences are, they are simply invitations to reconnect with the source of love who will change me. I've got to quit worrying about the symptoms and focus on the solution. huh? What a relief that can be for us. It is a miraculous promise that God offers to his followers that the secular people have no concept of and no avenue to tap. So, let us be grateful for that one who sees us as the worst of possible sinners and loves us anyway. Yeah?
Dear Shannon, Several years ago, your dad and I were first asked to talk about forgiveness in the context of your murder. Since we vowed to tell our story whenever someone asked, here I am again. You love to talk, so this seems fitting and appropriate. As a communications major at college, you seem to come up with the most clever ideas and words to express yourself. I'm not that creative, but writing you a letter helps me, even though you'll never hear nor read it. When Anthony Robinson got into your apartment on that Sunday, I can't even imagine the sheer terror you must have felt. I want to believe that God kept you from feeling the pain and humiliation as Anthony brutally killed you. The detectives said you were rendered unconscious very early on. I choose to believe that was true. You'd be glad that our dear friend John Cress was the one who told us of your death. He was so kind about it. Then he, Henning, Stephen Payne, your old boss, John Brunt and Liz Heisler stayed with us for days as we sorted out the logistics of your service. Who to ask to serve as your pallbearers, do the music, and take part in your funeral at the Walla Walla College Church, your church, where you served as a deaconess and student elder. The Maryland police and detectives worked very hard on your case. They found your prayer journal beside your bed and read it. Your silent witness made them determined to find your killer. Amazingly, Anthony was found and arrested early Tuesday. At first, he denied any connection, but later he pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, attempted sex offense, and armed robbery. Your neighbors identified him as going in and out of your department that fateful Sunday, Father's Day, and your Grandpa Messenger's birthday. Since you were moving soon to start your new job at Gem State Academy in Idaho, the neighbors thought Anthony must have bought some of your stuff so you wouldn't have to pack it. The impact of losing you, my firstborn, was and still is and ever will be enormous. The fact that you died such a violent death made it almost more than I could bear. However, as you always did, I put my trust in God and leaned heavily on Him. He also knows what it's like to lose a child by violence. How could I forgive Anthony, this man who violated you? I can't take any credit for not hating him. Jesus gave me that forgiveness early on. The one I hate is Satan. I was and am so angry at him that I felt guilty at first. I think you'd get a chuckle out of that. In some ways, it was easy for me to forgive Anthony. Perhaps I wanted to explain why he might have done this horrific deed because it would be easier for me to cope. Maybe he was on drugs when he attacked you, though by Tuesday when he was found, that couldn't be proved. Why wasn't he celebrating Father's Day with his dad? 
There was never any mention of a father in his life. He'd been in a mental hospital, and he made terrible life choices. Someone like that triggers pity from me, not hatred. Oh, I hate what he did to you, and I believe he should face the consequences of his actions. Life in prison without the possibility of parole isn't too harsh a punishment in my mind. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean I've not forgiven him. For me, the real test of forgiveness came when I felt convicted to pray for Anthony. How could I pray for someone who killed you? But Jesus prayed for those who were nailing him to the cross. And he taught us to love our enemies and those who hurt us. So I asked Jesus to make me willing to pray for Anthony. But it took months before I could do it. However, thanks to my Savior's persistent nudging, I've been able to pray that Anthony will learn about Christ and his forgiveness, a gift much more important than my forgiveness. After all, Jesus died for Anthony just as much as he died for you and me. And I know you want I know you'd want us to forgive your killer. Once convinced that something was right, you let nothing stand in your way to follow those convictions. Thank you for modeling that. When I saw the prison where Anthony is incarcerated, those brick buildings surrounded by rows of razor wire, I sobbed with grief again. My heart ached with loneliness for you. But I wondered about Anthony, then only 31 years old. What must it be like to spend every day of your life locked up? Does he ever feel sorry or guilty for what he did to you? Will he ever know he's forgiven? Does that idea even cross his mind? I want to remember that forgiveness is a gift from God. He knows that hatred and anger only hurt us, not those who perpetrated the harm. I need to remember that I can't do anything, including forgiving Anthony, to make me good enough to save. I need to remember to stay connected to Jesus so that I can see you again, my dear Shani. We know your life wasn't perfect, but you certainly were headed in the right direction. Someday you'll be surprised to learn that your death has helped others. Perhaps you'll meet someone in heaven who says, You don't know me, but I'm here because of you. I can imagine you saying, See, Mom, it was worth it. Until then, I'll keep on praying for Anthony, for myself, and for all our family and friends. Being here at Tahoe Camp Meeting brings back lots of memories, mostly because we're relatively close to Yosemite, one of your favorite places. That's where you wanted to vacation before going to Yap for a year. 
California in general held a special spot in your heart since we moved to this state when you were two years old. You would love it here. I also know you'd be enjoying Carl's nightly messages. When he was a college student at Walla Walla, you especially liked the way he and a group of friends illustrated one of your dad's sermons by acting out a song by Pat and Calvin Taylor. The song told the story about the woman caught in adultery, the very story of his sermon last night. How could your sweet life end in such tragedy? When I watch the news clips of a body bag being carried out of your apartment, it seems surreal. Can that possibly be our girl? That only happens to other people. Sadly, sin happens, and your death is a small part of the huge sin problem everyone faces. We just have to make a choice about how we'll deal with it. I'm choosing to keep asking Jesus to hold my hand as we continue to walk through this valley. When we visit your grave, I hate leaving you at Mount Hope Cemetery. But one day, it will be a glorious place when all of you who died in Christ will rise first. I love and miss you so much, and I'll see you then, Mom. Did we raise some questions or comments from you? Oh, thank you. I, I'm I'm terrible at not finishing stories. What happened to Anthony? She said. Uh, his appeal uh, in the spring of that following year. Um, was heard by a panel of different judges than the ones. Sorry. And um, they rejected his appeal because he had very clearly known what he was doing, said what he was doing, knew what he was agreeing to when he made the plea bargain. So he was not granted a trial. Uh, and the judges rejected that appeal. Yeah. So he is still in prison, and uh, I, I mentioned to you the other day that the state of Maryland does not allow us in any contact with him whatsoever. Uh, it took me even a few months after uh, that pivotal experience on Sabbath morning uh, that spring to be ready to consider the possibility of being in touch with him in any direct way. Uh, but when that time came, I, I phoned prison officials and was connected to the psychologist on the unit that had done the uh, entry evaluations for him as he was going into prison. And um, he explained to me this reality in Maryland that will prevent us ever from having any direct contact. So we rely on others uh, to do that. He, was it, go ahead. He did appeal a second time. <laughs> Too, but that wasn't as traumatic of an experience, of course, because we'd been through it once. But it still raised, for me at least, uh, a little anxiety because I didn't want to have to go through a trial. Uh, um, I knew that if that came up, then 
they might again try to seek the death penalty and when that happens and there's a whole second phase and they parade people through that tell what a wonderful person he is and I really didn't want to hear that <laughs> and they look for witnesses that talk about the flaws in the other person as yeah. well the victim so. you know that that whole thing reminds me of how in our minds many of you who either have endured or been with family members who have had prolonged illnesses or have uh, lost them by deterioration mentally or in some other way uh, experience these losses. In many ways, that is more painful than what we have experienced. Even though ours was sudden and unexpected, it was over with. And for many of you, that goes on forever. Decades ago, when I first started um, doing some counseling work at the at the center at the church at La Sierra, we started having a weekly divorce recovery group. And I agonize with those of you who have been through those kinds of painful experiences because it doesn't just go away when it's over. The, the repeated contacts with those people, the need to be in touch with uh, those if the if the issues are not in some way resolved and if there is ongoing tension it perpetuates the pain for an indefinite period of time and for us at least that wasn't the case 1996 yeah it seems like it's been a long time ago that's another reality that some of you have reminded us of no matter when trauma and loss happen we don't forget it do we we learn to cope with it, but it never goes away. It's always there. Yes? Yeah, the question is, uh, what kind of background did Anthony have? Barbara talked to him being in, about him being in a mental hospital. This... Uh, I'm, I'm glad you talked about this, and maybe Barbara and I can work on resolving a little discrepancy between us, because we have a little different perspective on this one. <laughs> go ahead. No. You started it. You go ahead. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're going to talk about. It was easier for Barbara to be forgiving for, of Anthony than it was for me. Um, and I, uh, I understand you to say in your paper that uh, his, men, his diagnosis gave you some uh, ability to ex- excuse. Well, see, these are all my words and they're pejorative words. But it was easier for you to overlook his behavior because of the background that he had had. I don't know if overlook is the right word, but, but it was, I felt sorry for him rather yeah. than anger. Yeah. yeah. So mercy is, comes easier for her and justice comes easier for me. I say this man was not paranoid. He was not schizophrenic. He simply had a bipolar disorder, which did not take away his ability to make concrete and very uh, rational, reasonable decisions, so it ought in no way to excuse his behavior. And I remember the detectives telling us that as a juvenile, he had been in juvenile detention several times and had been 
was it accused or convicted? We we heard all of this unofficially because once you become a once you become an adult, your minor history can't be carried into court anymore. But he had been at least accused of uh, sexual assault as a juvenile as well. Um, so uh, you can tell Barbara and I are still working that one through. Um, yeah. He he had a horrible background. There's there's no doubt yeah, that's, about that. That is true. And no father figure in the home. Uh, one Sabbath morning, just as we were getting ready to leave for Sabbath school, we got a phone call. Well, actually, we had gotten a call earlier in the week from a, from a television reporter in Washington D.C. with whom we had visited several times. And uh, she called us and said that she had been with, in touch with Anthony's mother. And Anthony's mother would like to be in touch with us. Would we be willing to entertain a call from her? And we said, of course, our phone number's in the phone book. It's no secret. We'd be glad to hear from her. Well, she called on Sabbath morning as we were getting ready to leave for Sabbath school. And uh, in the conversation, described how uh, she was very sorry about this, how she had raised Anthony going to Sunday school every week, that he knew better than this kind of behavior, um, and that she was so relieved to discover that I was a pastor because that gave her hope that we wouldn't go out after her other children. <laughs> So the, after her other children, that we would take out our vengeance on her family since we couldn't get at him. So he grew up in the streets in Washington, D.C., and the law of the sidewalks was a whole different reality than the world in which we had lived. So he did have a pretty traumatic past, I think. Uh, he, he was... Uh, his educational ability was marginal. He could read some and write some, but he wasn't a good student. So he had not done well in school. Yeah. Was this sooner or quicker forgiveness from Barbara been a bit resent, resentful or hard to handle in your heart? Mm. You're asking me that question. Yeah. The, the question is, has Barbara's ability to forgive sooner created resentment for me? Um, I hadn't thought of the question just that way before. No, I don't think it was resentment. There was a lot of puzzlement for me and uncertainty. And uh, the, the whole experience has taught us how important it is to give other people latitude to be where they are even if it's not where we are and that's been a lesson uh, that I ne needed to learn and still need to learn I uh, the lines are always fairly clear to me and it seems to me that everybody else ought to see them the way I see them they're perfectly obvious <laughs> yeah so <laughs> yeah so that has been, I think, more of a learning experience for me than resentment toward her. But it certainly has been the case that at different stages, um, 
since then, we have been at quite different places. At times, one of us has been very sad, and another one has been kind of indifferent about this. Uh, and to be able to acknowledge someone else's yeah, position in the process of things, even though it's not our own, is uh, is an important thing. I remember a, um, a family I worked with while we were in California years and years ago, um, and um, the mother is one who was coming regularly for counseling, post-divorce counseling. She had a six-year-old child who lived with her, and one of her concerns was that if she emotionally let out the sadness that came to her in waves, um, that it would uh, destabilize life for the six-year-old. And uh, in conversation together, she decided that she would do a little experimenting with that. And the truth of the matter was, this six-year-old boy was a wonderful support for her. She uh, came to the place where the two of them were able to share very openly, verbally, where she was, and she would, while the two of them were together, just let herself sob and sob and sob. And he'd quit playing with his toys, come and hold her hand while she cried. And when she finished crying, he'd go back and play with his toys again. That was a great illustration to me of being supportive of someone whose life journey you weren't sharing, but whom you cared about anyway. Yeah. Please. The question is, was there any history of violence with Anthony's family, husband, or wife and children? He's not married. No. So, not that we know of toward other people, but not necessarily his family. I was going to interject one other thing. Um, a few months after all of this happened, one dear little old lady in our church saw me after on the way out of church, and she's, she said, Oh, honey, I'm so glad to see that you're still together and you're still coming to church and love the Lord. And I thought that was the oddest thing for her to say to me because it hadn't occurred to me to, that we wouldn't be together or that I would have given up on God. But uh, later, I realized what a wise woman she really was. And some studies indicate that as high as 80, 85% of all marriages of end in divorce if a child has been especially lost to violence. The, the statistics are really high. And when we went to that Parents of Murdered Children meeting in Portland, only one other couple in that room was still together with their spouse, and they, their son had just been killed like a week or two before. So the statistics were not very encouraging. <laughs> so we're just pretty grateful that we're still together through all of our personality changes and <laughs> everything. You know, we've we've done pretty well, I think. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Tomorrow, one more, and then we'll tell you about tomorrow. Thank you. Hmm. Mm, thank you. Well, I, I hope our sharing, again, as I said at the very beginning, will not lock you so much into our story that you neglect the ways in which God can touch you in similar ways, whatever your issues happen to be. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow morning, uh, we'll talk a bit more about, um, from a theoretical point of view, what we can do to become forgiving and what God does for us uh, in the process. 
So it would be a little more theoretical. Kind of a... He, he's going to put on his professor hat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See you then. <laughs>